I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. I am so excited to share that my book, The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga, comes out this spring. This is the book for every yoga teacher, studio, and practitioner who wants to incorporate an inclusive approach to yoga. It is available for purchase on my website, laraland.us, and everywhere books are sold. If you're loving this podcast, you are going to love this book. Welcome back, everyone. I'm super excited about this episode. Today, I have on Jacoby Ballard, and we talk, well, we cover a lot of ground, a lot of ground, and we probably could have talked for another couple hours. Some of the things that we cover in this episode are forgiveness. What is forgiveness all about? How do we start the process of forgiveness? How do we let go of anger? and diffuse, discharge anger? What kind of practices can we do to support that if we're ready to to forgive or we feel like, you know, we're holding on to something and it's causing us harm? We talk about Brahma-viharas, which are the heart teachings found in both yoga and Buddhism, and how they've changed um, both of our, our viewpoints on how we look at people, how we look at just folks that we might run into during the day, like our barista. And we talk about all of this, all of our discussion, I should say, way that that Jacoby teaches is really through the viewpoint and the lens of Black feminism and through a queer lens. So, you know, centering some of the most discriminated in our country, centering their viewpoint, and you will hear why that is essential for all of our liberation and how Jacoby's teachings and existence have brought me to a new level of of liberation in myself, experiencing more freedom through his teachings. Uh, We also talk about the experience of pregnancy or germinating is the term that Jacoby used when he was pregnant, opening people's eyes to the fact that there are pregnant men and a safe place for them to practice yoga, prenatal yoga and postnatal yoga. And we talk a little bit about kids and there's probably even more. So you're, you're going to want to tune in. Jacoby Ballard is a social justice educator and yoga teacher on Shoshone Ute, Paiute and Goshute land, now known as Salt Lake City, Utah. He leads workshops and trainings around the country on diversity, equity, and inclusion. As a yoga teacher with 24 years of experience, he leads workshops, retreats, and segments in teacher trainings, teacher conferences, has been an artist in residence on dozens of college campuses. In 2008, Jacoby co-founded Third Root Community Health Center in Brooklyn to work at the nexus of healing and social justice. 
Since 2006, Jacoby has taught queer and trans yoga, a space for queer folks to unfurl and cultivate resilience, and received Yoga Journal's Game Changer Award in 2014 and Good Karma Award in 2016. Receiving prenatal yoga training in 2021, Jacoby now offers a queer and trans-centered prenatal yoga online and LGBT inclusion workshops in prenatal yoga teacher trainings so that queer families can be anticipated and supported in their process. And these are also open to cis women who might learn more about the queer experience from attending one of these classes. Jacoby has taught in schools, hospitals, nonprofit and business centers, maximum security prison, a recovery center, cancer center, LGBT centers, gyms, veteran centers, and yoga studios. His first book, A Queer Dharma, Yoga and Meditations for Liberation, was released in 2022. You can read more about Jacoby on jacobyballard.net. And he has a book coming up that we talk about. And I also want to say that in this conversation, we're in practice. We are in practice of meeting each other and through our practices and building trust, building awareness. And it's pretty powerful. Okay. Enjoy. Well, there we go. Hi, Jacoby. Hi. (laughs) I'm so glad we finally got our date together. Yes. And I am uh, really honored to have you on a podcast with your busy schedule. And you're someone who I follow your work and it's really touched me and resonated with me and been a part of my growth. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. Oh, thanks so much for saying that. I was looking over your book last night and it gave me an idea. I was reading the the back cover of your beautiful book, A Queer Dharma, Yoga and Meditations for Liberation. And on the back, it says that your work explores the Brahmaviharas or heart teachings of yoga and Buddhism through a queer lens informed by Black feminism and activism. And it got me thinking that, you know, I think it's part of both of our practices to always set the framework, the view that we look at practices through, that we could really model that and take a look at those lenses. Sure. And kind of break them down a little. Yeah. (laughs) That kind of came to me. So uh, what what does it mean? Maybe we'll start backward, that you look at Buddhism and yoga from a Black feminist an activism lens and how, because we're always kind of looking at a trauma context here, how does maybe that lens speak to trauma healing or trauma acknowledgement? Well, I think, you know, Black feminism is about liberation and, and yoga is too. And sometimes I've experienced in the U.S., depending on who's teaching, that liberation can be very individually oriented within yoga. And something that I've appreciated about Black feminism is that it's always collective oriented, acknowledging that there's not a single person that can be liberated without the whole community, especially for a group like Black folks that have been really terribly oppressed and targeted for centuries. And then I also think that another part of it is centering the most vulnerable and the needs of the most vulnerable and Sometimes that means that those who are not as vulnerable won't be as comfortable. And that's a risk that is necessary to take and that we we all need to take. And I think 
working within yoga worlds that are that are dominated by cisgender white able-bodied women generally centers them <laughs> and mm. i've gotten a lot of pushback at like centering different groups of people you know at third root community health center that i founded in brooklyn we had from the get-go from the moment we opened we had queer and trans yoga we had yoga for abundant bodies we've had different iterations of classes for bipoc folks and Part of the intention of that is centering and, and hearing the needs of those communities, one of which is to have have their own spaces where they're not as vulnerable to microaggressions and therefore can really sink into the practices and the teachings. Mm, yeah. And then get those practices and teachings in their their bodies, their hearts, their breaths, so that it resources them to go into other classes where they might be more more vulnerable, but they have this practice then that kind of can create a shield or a context where the harm doesn't hit them in the same way. Mm. Oh, I love thinking of the practice that way. Mm. Are there particular practices that that you find meet that need? So many. I, so many of the practices that I call upon as, as a trans person, as a queer person, as an anti-racist justice worker, as a parent <laughs> every day, mm. one of which is, is the breath. And I love that it's we can be doing pranayama work unbeknownst to anyone around us, right? <laughs> like I could be in a long line at the LA airport, not sure if I'm going to make my flight and be doing breath work. And it looks like I'm just standing there like everyone else. <laughs> but because I'm doing that breath work, I'm regulating myself and that's going to ripple outwards because we're so, our nervous systems automatically co-regulate. Yeah. That, that personal work impacting the, the people that are around you. Yeah. And so again, looking at these practices as not just for your own sake, but also for who's in, in space with you. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, we know that <laughs> it's subtle, the the co-regulation, but also it's very obvious, right? If, if I'm calmer, I have less chance to react at my kid, at my partner. Yeah. What would you say, you know, some people say, well, we deserve to be angry. There's so much to be angry about and that being calm is not the answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree. I wrote a whole chapter of my book on anger because every time I teach, especially the Brahma Viharas, the loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, it comes up. I think anger is so necessary. Anger tells us that something is wrong. And there's, in that way, there's a wisdom to anger that I think it would be an incredible misfortune to not be attentive to. So when we dismiss anyone's anger, we also are dismissing their wisdom. And anger is not sustainable over the long term. It will break our hearts and break our bodies and impact our, our mental health and our, our blood pressure and our immune systems, all of these impacts of remaining in a state of anger. And I know that that's, that anger and rage and the grief that underlies it is what propels so many of us into activism. And so I think also there needs to be an honoring of anger for that way, because we want to welcome people into social justice work, right? Not shame them for how they're showing up or the, the state of mind heart that they're showing up with. And also, I want those people to remain in the work for decades. And uh, if you're operating from a place of anger for decades, then that's going to cost you relationships. That's going to cost you work. It's going to mean that you're more fixated on a story 
it doesn't necessarily benefit you to be rehearsing in your mind. So one of the ways I talk about anger in my book is that we need to discharge the energy of it, the, the heat, the potency, the urgency of anger, finding some way to physically or vocally discharge it. And I'm curious what you would say about that, as I feel like you do a lot more work that's centering trauma than I do. But once we've done that release, then others are going to receive the message of our anger better because we're not scary. <laughs> we're, not, we're not talking with a loud voice. We're not talking quickly. We're not, you know, our body doesn't look aggressive because we've released that energy, mm. which is not to say that that energy is bad. But I think about being a good friend to my anger and the wisdom of my anger. And you're not going to hear the wisdom if I'm screaming at you. And, mm. and shaming you. But if I'm grounded and if I've done some self-regulation tools, I can still speak from the potency of the wisdom of the anger, but deliver it in a way that you can digest and absorb. And then we can move forward, which is ultimately what anger really wants, right? Is we need the message of anger is always, I need this to change right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I love that befriending the anger. How, like, can you take me through when I'm feeling really, really angry and I'm no, if I have enough awareness to say, okay, I'm really, you know, I'm really pissed right now. What? And I'm not ready to like not be. Uh (laughs) (laughs) What are some practices or ways to start to approach it? Years ago, Sean Korn assigned me the the practice of going up onto my rooftop in Brooklyn and screaming. And I still recommend that to lots of people. Mm. And I do it even with my kid. I'm not going to scream at him, but I get him into his room or I get him into the car seat. Mm -hmm. And then I like step away 10 feet and scream (laughs) so that I still have that relief and release, but not all over his body, mind, heart. So some sort of like screaming or stomping or, you know, hitting something. I go on runs. I know people that go to batting cages or that take up boxing to move that fight or flight energy, right? Which is our arms and our legs. And for folks that don't have that mobility in arms and legs, then vocally or you know, I've had people do like really fast breaths because, mm-hmm. you know, everyone who's who's alive is breathing. Something that takes that energy that's that's urgent and hot and moves it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I like to get really physically active. I'm also pretty quickly aware that usually under my anger is some kind of hurt. Yeah. And when that discharge can happen then and maybe that's why the resistance to you it's why the holding on to the anger is mm-hmm. not wanting to to face the tears mm-hmm. totally yeah it's a lot more vulnerable lama yeah. rod talks about that in his book love and rage a lot it, it it takes a lot to get to that vulnerable place of the grief especially for communities that are you know fighting to survive every day yeah. there's not really opportunity to let down the ferocity of anger. But then it's like a further wound that the anger is stereotyped. And and if we looked at who gets stereotyped as like an angry person, right? It's anyone that's facing oppression. It's women, it's Black folks, it's trans folks, it's queer folks. (laughs) And so it's just another layer of the oppression. And then what do we do? We get even more angry, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, sometimes I think that part of my role as being in, you know, not one of those groups you mentioned and more privileged position is like, let me do the anger for you. That's sometimes how I think of that. And yet you're teaching forgiveness practices. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to be explored. And I think of it as like never ending work. You know, my my mom worked for the IRS for years. And one of the ways that she talked about that work is that like that job, (laughs) that role is unlikely to end. And I, I think about working with, you know, working with pain and working with hurt through forgiveness practice is similar. And I also see it as harm reduction that we wouldn't have asked for the hurt, the centuries of oppression, the genocide, the displacement and land theft to happen. But since that stuff has happened, forgiveness is the wisest way forward, but we can't get to forgiveness before we feel our grief and rage. So there's there's a process, there's like an uncovering. And mm. then when someone feels stable enough, steady enough, protected enough to go into their vulnerability, it really serves us to to let go of those layers of hurt that we might otherwise carry around. Because if we're carrying armor, the armor is not choosy. We're going to have armor against our beloveds. We're going to have armor up with our kids. We're going to have armor up in the grocery store. <laughs> it doesn't serve us. We won't have as intimate of relationships. For me, my closest friendships, and this is you know how we started out talking to each other this morning, that's what makes life so meaningful. And, and my most favorite moments that I look back on from year to year are moments with my best friends. But we can't have that intimacy if we're holding on to the hurt from the ways that we've been betrayed or abandoned or violated or dismissed. Yeah, I have to 100% agree with that. I have noticed that like, I've had a couple moments where where I'm like, why am I holding back even my love for my child? Uh You know, it's weird to say that. It feels very vulnerable to say that, but I can deeply relate to what you're saying and have witnessed that in my own protection. Yeah. Yeah. And people go like decades without forgiving. And so carrying that around. And that's, yeah, I write about in my book, but then my grandma and her sister are some of my greatest inspirations for forgiveness because they were in their 80s at family parties, still fighting about something from when they were teenagers. Yeah. And feel free to share any of the stories from the book. I know we want people to pick it up. (laughs) (laughs) But anytime you feel inclined, there are a lot of good and very personal stories in there which I think is very helpful for when we're learning practices. So I really appreciate that you Mm. shared that. It makes it more relatable. Yeah. When you're working with the students or students and you're working towards the forgiveness, so I think you give a course on forgiving. I do, yeah. It's been a four-week course and I've taught a couple of weekend-long retreats on it at this point. Do you require that they're doing some of that back work or is that part of the you know the first hours of the course all the stuff that you just detailed about what we have to kind of get through first before we can get to that forgiveness i mean i i usually don't force it on people i i have taught it in my yoga teacher trainings so that it's just part of the what we're doing but also people could leave the room if they weren't ready for it usually people that sign up for a retreat or a workshop of forgiveness some part of them knows that it's good for them <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. which which means that they're probably not in the depths of rage maybe they're in the depths of grief and kind of can see a possibility of a path 
forward out of out of their grief. But usually, you know, grief and rage will inevitably come up because we're doing excavation of the, mm. the hurt and the harm. We're turning our full attention towards it. But I try to do so using a lot of the breath work, a lot of the t- discharge, the skills that I've learned in studying trauma around orientation and, and self-regulation. Um, we're, we're, you know, bringing stuff up and then stepping back and doing that self-regulation and then coming back to looking at the the hurt and the harm and then stepping back again and again. So because I found that people can get really overwhelmed if we just do a deep dive into the hardest things in their lives or in their ancestors' path. So I think, you know, yoga tools can be really supportive then. Yeah. I noticed that in your book, you talk about that. And that's so important about going in we talk about this a lot in trauma, you know, going right. going into the feeling and then going away from it. So kind of pendulating so that we don't, you know, it's not too much. It's because if we overwhelm, we risk re-triggering ourselves and actually right. going backwards. That's really excellent. If if someone's listening right now and, you know, they're in that space of grief and wanting to to forgive, to let go a little bit, is there a practice or something you can recommend? Yeah, I think something that would be great preceding a formal forgiveness practice is Tonglen because it's it's working with the breath, so it's embodied. It's a Tibetan practice that tra- is translated as giving and receiving. And there's a process of uh, breathing. The practice is breathing in love and breathing out love. And often I'll have students, you know, stay with that for five or more minutes. And then the next one is breathing in suffering and breathing out love. And that one, we're trying to think about the suffering that's happening in our world, you know, the suffering that's coming up through the news, suffering that might be happening in our neighborhoods, trying, inviting ourselves to be in greater proximity with it, and then breathing out love, knowing that our own hearts can transform that energy and that what we do in our lives and what we do in our hearts inevitably is going to impact the neighborhood, the community, the household. And then the next direction of Tonglen is breathing in love and breathing out suffering, which is kind of the beginning of of forgiveness. There's a letting go. There's a release of what you might be clutching tightly and holding on to, recognizing that in order to do that, you need to have love and care and be attended to, have your basic needs met. So you're breathing in all that love to resource you to then be able to let go of some of the hurt, some of the armor that's built up around the hurt. And then going back to the original words of breathing in love and breathing out love, remembering that we are inherently lovable and we all have the capacity to love abundantly. So it kind of touches into the hurt, but usually doesn't overwhelm. It can be intense because of the breath. And often we hold our bodies tight when we're not ready to feel something fully. And if we're holding our bodies tight, then we can't fully breathe. So if we're doing any kind of breath work or meditation that is working with the breath in any way, it's going to impact the body and kind of unravel something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But being able to go go back to the original phrases usually grounds someone. Mm. Is this something that you repeat again and again? Is it a daily practice? Can we do it? Is it done seated? you know, kind of in that classic sitting up tall back, or can it be done in different positions? 
It can be done in all kinds of positions. You know, I, I sometimes do it when I'm driving. <laughs> mm. Opportunities to practice or on the subway or on the bus or the airplane. Usually for me, those kind of public settings where like, you know, I didn't choose who's on the road with me or who's on the airplane with me. <laughs> There's ample opportunity to practice. And I think that that's really has taken my practice further to take it off of the cushion. I feel like the cushion and the space of yoga retreat is a space to dive deeply, but then I think it can't just stay isolated to the yoga mat or the meditation cushion that it needs to be applied throughout our lives. So sometimes like when I'm walking my dog, I might repeat those phrases or washing the dishes, usually like doing something repetitive where I don't necessarily have to like give my full attention to what I'm doing. Those phrases can actually help me pay more attention and be present. But again, that's the beauty of some of these tools is that we can practice them in a really stealth way in lots of different settings, lots of different postures. I really, really appreciate that recommendation. And I think I'm hearing more from people a call to bring practices into daily life, which I think is so important and Mm -hmm. has been a little bit left out of some of the discourse about, you know, meditation and mindfulness and, you know, folks thinking they have to sit for 20 minutes or an hour, these kind of prescribed things Mm -hmm. and these just daily, maybe hourly drop-ins of what's happening right now. Yeah, I think think that's a product of like colonization and cultural appropriation that some of these practices are just taking out, taken out of the cultural context. Whereas for a lot of my Asian colleagues, their primary practice has been chanting and bowing just you know as part of what you do with your with your family and not many fewer people like have a formal sit or a formal asana practice so in that way i feel like that's how these teachings were intended and have been for millennia is to be integrated into our daily lives as individuals and integrated into what the community does together yeah yeah what the community does together. That's fantastic. Um, I wonder how, I, I would like to also introduce the the Brahma Viharas and the heart mm-hmm. teachings. And I wonder if those come after the forgiveness practice or is it all together or in any order we wish? <laughs> <laughs> I've played around with the order that I teach the Brahma Viharas in just out of a, a querying of the practice and to see what comes up. The traditional order of them is loving kindness, compassion, joy, and then equanimity. And one of the directions of the Brahma Viharas, like we offer, we sit with certain phrases and recite them either towards ourselves or towards others. And so there's a category of yourself offering loving kindness or any of the practices towards someone that you cherish, someone that's easy to be around, someone that's mentored you, offering it towards a neutral person, a neighbor, someone walking their dog, a clerk at the post office, a loved one where there's usually a lot of beauty and connection and probably some conflict as well, and then towards a difficult person. And often when I'm teaching loving kindness towards the difficult person, that's when the door to forgiveness opens (laughs) because Mm. someone is like, how can I possibly wish this person to be well when they've hurt me so damn much? And so, you know, that tells me, oh, there's hurt there. There's grief there. There's, there's an energy there to attend to. So yeah, there's, you know, anger to discharge. There's grief rituals to explore. 
and then perhaps for getting to forgiveness. And I try to suggest to people that one of the goals with all of the Brahma Viharas is to invite the whole world into your heart. And obviously that's going to be very difficult with difficult people. And so there's a process to get there and to kind of soften our hearts and to see the humanity in other people, to understand that hurt people hurt people. And some of the ways in which they've hurt you is personal and maybe about you and targeted you. And in some of the ways you were just there, the wrong place, the wrong time, you know, like born into the wrong family or, you know, in too much proximity with a given uh, boss or whatever it is. And that they're their anger, their hatred, their fear was bound to get all over whoever was in that position. And I think both are important to recognize what what is personal and what's totally not personal. Yeah, so I, I usually integrate forgiveness after loving kindness, like somewhere around loving kindness and compassion if I'm teaching all of the Brahma Viharas. And sometimes also when we're doing mudita joy practice, that can I found that that can open a doorway to some folks for working with difficult people where Mudita, the teaching is about wishing that we and others around us have even more pleasure, even more delight, even more beauty and brilliance in our lives. And somehow, sometimes seeing a difficult person through what they enjoy can open a door because we're not looking directly at the pain. We're looking at you know, oh, you you geek out on trees, so do I. Or, you know, you uh, love to be by the ocean, so do I. There's usually something that like we might find in common that then humanizes the difficult person, which is, there's lots of tricks like that. And that's, you know, as a teacher, that's where I'm trying to get people to go is like, how can you see this person's humanity, even though they've caused you so much pain? I love that you're sharing some tricks. <laughs> you can always use some more tools. <laughs> you know, the one I always hear is like, start with an easy person first, like yeah. someone that just um, just bothers you a little bit, <laughs> you right. know? Totally. But it's not always clear how that really, I mean, yes, there's some tolerance, building up some tolerance for being uncomfortable. and But I think what you're suggesting is a little bit deeper seeing the humanity, finding something you can relate to, recognizing that hurt people hurt people. All those, yeah, all those awarenesses can soften, can soften one a little bit. Yeah. Sometimes people think of the Brahma Viharas as like a side practice or not, I don't know, not as core as I would see Mm. to the practices that one would want to be incorporating as a you know, aspiring yogi or Buddhist practitioner. Any thoughts on that? I think it's becoming a lot more common. You know, I've been practicing for almost 25 years. And in the beginning, I didn't. I, I've only been practicing the Brahma Viharas for, for probably 12 years now, having sat with Sharon Salzberg in New York, was where I was first introduced to them and, and through her book, Loving Kindness. But for me, what I noticed when I found the Brahma Viharas, I'd already been practicing over a decade. And one of the things that our colleague Halakori often says is that you know when the practices are working is when your relations relationships are improving. Mm-hmm. And when I started studying and practicing the, the Brahma Viharas, my colleague relationships, my friendships just started getting better. I was less tolerant of people treating me badly because I was 
you know, doing the work on myself to see myself as lovable. And if so, if people weren't loving me, I was more willing to shed those relationships. I was kinder. I became kinder to people that I hadn't met yet, which especially for me in in the yoga world, one of the like categories of people that I struggle with is able-bodied white women who are a little bit older than me. And, you know, many of my teachers have pointed out, like, your soul has been asking to evolve and grow because you chose yoga as your vocation. Mm. <laughs> and it's full of that group of people. Um, and so the Brahma Viharas, you know, allowed me, I feel like without the Brahma Viharas, I don't know if we could have a, this conversation right now mm. because I was so stuck in pain and being right and that righteousness of anger and sometimes the isolation of grief as well. The Brahma Vihara is working with neutral people, that category of neutral people allowed me to like see everyone around me as imagine the, the fullness of their lives rather than just like dismissing them or watching how they don't tip the barista and then like writing them off forever. Thinking about like, wow, I, I wonder like what's the context for them not tipping the barista? Like, are they short on on cash? Are they like absent-minded because their mother was just diagnosed with cancer and that's where their full attention is? Are they, have they never been a barista and they don't know what it's like to get, depend on every dollar that, that is tipped to you or not? Like it just allowed me to like be more in the space of questions rather than the space of judgment. And so then, you know, I just had more relationships with better and better people that I respect and cherish. And that created further incentive to continue practicing. I just love everything that you just said. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, uh, you know, shout out to Hala for that really wise statement that, you know, because there is a way to practice where our relationships don't get better. And that is such a good thermometer for, you know, maybe is my practice working? Maybe if my relationships aren't getting better, if I'm getting more distant, if I'm, you know, if they're not improving over time, then maybe the approach to practice or different practices might need to be integrated because it's about our lives. Right. <laughs> it's about our lives and what, and, and our lives are about being in relationship. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I also think about like who, like in terms of different people's identities that we're in relationship with, like who are we in relationship with? And are those, you know, are cross-racial relationships improving? Are multi-gender relationships improving? Do we, are there groups of people that we don't have relationship with? And how is that playing into historical structures of, of oppression and trauma and division and separation? And so that in that way, having relationships across difference and, and doing the work inside of ourselves to, to heal from you know, white supremacy and misogyny and transphobia, all the things is like really bucks the system (laughs) is, is creating social change because often when you, when you change a heart, you can't go back. Once you love people, it's really hard to go back. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think my mind's going so many directions. I mean, one is what you said about the, the barista and in the way that this, that the Brahma Vihara is really that category of what do they call like the neutral person, but no one's really neutral. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like the way that it can just open our aliveness, like our, our awareness of the world. Yeah. And to, you know, maybe not see people as means. Mm-hmm. And then that curiosity that's interesting that do you, do you think that that's like inborn 
in that practice or something you brought to it? Because curiosity is something that I'm always kind of teaching about in the pra- in all of our practices. Mm. You're asking what curiosity about what? Is that that curiosity that you found the practicing the Brahma Viharas around mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. someone that you don't really know? Mm-hmm. I was just wondering if you found that innate to that practice or is something that evolved for you or you were taught to bring to it? I think I think it is innate to the practice. And I think, you know, cycling back to the beginning of our conversation with black feminism, you know, I think it's important to always read the position at my positionality in a room and someone else's positionality because then that allows me to get more curious or we can watch our how we might shut down or not be curious there's a new the a new chapter that i'm working on for this anthology that i'm writing with hala and tessa hicks peterson where i write that i have a whole section about humanizing those with most privilege that that you know, white men can be written off or white women's tears or the Beckys and the Karens. Or as a trans person, I've certainly dismissed all cisgender people as just being inherently fucked up. I think the Brahma Viharas can like reel that back. And we each have a role to play in, in finding social justice. And and even people with privilege have a role to play. And we do ourselves a disservice and we make our movement smaller if we don't give them a role, which is not to say that like those who have had privilege for the last many hundreds of years should continue to be centered and continue to be in leadership, but they shouldn't be completely thrown out. And so how do we find a role that's appropriate to their skills, their gifts, their networks, and that moves the movement forward, ultimately? I mean, that's really a big place to get to. And I don't take that very lightly. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's, I've always experienced a real warmth and acceptance from, from you Mm -hmm. that I, Certainly, I don't think I earned, and you taught me. <laughs> I mean, I, not that I've been rude to you or anything. <laughs> like, you, just, you know, you've given that to me from the. Be- I felt that's you from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's so it's so big what you're saying, right? Especially coming from a trans person who, you know, one of the most stigmatized groups in the world, really in danger. As you know, it's not a surprise for me to say that your life is in danger, you know, more than mine and more than many others to get to that place is just so huge. And I appreciate it. And I think, I think it will draw more people, I hope, to do the work that we need to do. By we, I mean, you know, white women and, you know, the more privileged groups that you mentioned. Yeah. And I think that's, again, where like your practices and my practices can allow us to meet in this conversation. Right, where like we're willing to go into discomfort, and I'm not mapping you onto everyone that's ever hurt me, and you're not wary of ways in which trans people or different groups of people can be stigmatized kind of inherently as part of the Kool Aid of the culture. And so, with my awareness of, of you as an individual and your awareness of how dynamics of oppression and injustice play out, then we can like meet each other in a, in a space of kindness. But if I'm in my wound, I can't meet you there. And if you're scared of losing, I don't know what, like I'm trying to think of like what the people that are pa- passing transphobic policies all over the country are afraid of losing, maybe afraid of losing the space for women's sports or afraid mm-hmm. of losing safety for 
for people in bathrooms that they like, I want that safety too. I want that safety for everyone. But if you're not coming from that place of fear and neither am I, then we can actually figure out like how we, how we can meet and work together. And I think another part of it is for me that like, if I'm loving myself from the inside out, then I'm not dependent on how you're going to respond to me Mm. to know that I'm valuable and important. And so that actually allows me to confront any, any not knowing that you might have and hold Mm -hmm. space for it and not take it personally. And if I do that, then I can actually pull you onto our side. (laughs) I can bring Mm. you with us, right? Because I'm not, I'm not condemning, judging or punishing you, but see you as part of the solution. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that reminded me of something Lama Rod said about like, I'm not doing your work. <laughs> when I do my work, I don't have to do your work. And I <laughs> I think he described that really well in our um, when I had him on. And, you know, when you describe what the sorts of things, right, yeah, that cis people might be nervous about, well, you know, what, what comes up for me is, I think it's like a, those things are true. They're kind of superficial, but deep down, it's like a organization of the world that like can make sense (laughs) to Mm. them in some weird way Mm -hmm. or to us. And speaking with you and listening to you has revealed to me is uh, going back to like yoga and liberation is the way that trans people can really be a source of liberation for this world in so many ways. And I'd love to kind of get into that for a minute actually, because yeah, I mean, dissolving because of folks like you, like you give me more freedom. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's the that's the potential if people are open to it. And and again, cycling back to black feminism, like that's what's that's what was said by the Combahee River Collective in the in the 70s, right? When when black women's freedom, when black women get freedom, everyone's gonna be freed in the process because mm-hmm. they're oppression. Uh, or I mean, their their freedom allows for other women and for other Black people and all the different categories to have have more room and more humanity, and that's that's the possibility. But I think we're seen as like limiting or threatening the ways that things have always been done. But for how many people, real talk is like the gender binary working for? I don't know a yeah. single person that actually like whose gender expression attunes to like what's expected of them from birth like even even cisgender people right like there's a whole set of uh, expectations that very few women fulfill and very few cisgender men fulfill and that trans people our very existence just brings that to light (laughs) and that's great news for you right that's what i'm saying (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing that was like missing that's the connection that you really made for me on that panel that we did i think it was like that a soul fest panel and i was like from that moment on i got it Uh i was like i'm not just like you know not transphobic but like i'm like a fan (laughs) like i (laughs) get it you know like I wanted to scream that to the rooftops, you know, like see how this liberates us all. And the goal is liberation. Yeah. And we, and we get that with centering the most targeted people. We get that on so many different levels that it's going to free all of us in the process. If disabled people are centered Mm -hmm. because all of us are bound to be disabled at some point or another, if we live long enough. 
and all of us know someone in our family members or communities that are disabled that we that we care about and we need more room for the the wholeness of their their lives and their bodies in order to have to be in right relationship and we can go through all the different categories of people and and so it's it's about possibility rather than taking something away yeah and and then what it circles back to for me is that self love mm-hmm. because when i love myself and i'm good with myself like what's my problem with everyone else right it's like there's no fear there exactly goes back to the the brahma viharas you know when you were when we were talking about that and we were talking about forgiveness what came up for me was sometimes our own selves are the the hardest people to forgive yeah Totally. And I've talked with so many BIPOC organizers that are doing racial justice work that say that one of the foremost things they need from white people is for us to love ourselves. Because if we love ourselves, we don't need so much from them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we're not taking so much from them. When you love yourself, you need less in general, right? Because you don't need to fill that Right, like void with stuff, with power, with uh-huh. you know, power over with all the things that we do with putting people down so we can feel bigger, you know, all the kind yeah. of behaviors that come up when that self love is not there. Uh, we don't need to take up so much space when that self love is there because we don't right. have to be seen and like recognized by someone like you did good, right? <laughs> you know. I mean, I definitely have work on that all the time. <laughs> it's like not needing that from someone else, you know. And I think we, we do need accountability with one another, right? And to to check in, like, was what I wrote, what I said, how I showed up in that space, was that all right? Was that in alignment of the with our collective commitments and values? And that's going to be a constant practice in refining that. But again, where you know your self worth and the value of who you are is not threatened, even if you say the wrong thing or you know do something that's not so skillful, you're still an impeccably lovable being, <laughs> nevertheless. Great distinction. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's true. It doesn't mean go off and do everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. But when I don't take it so personally or attribute the feedback with my self worth. I mean, I can be open to more feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. That excites me in the in the realm of like yoga and Buddhism of like having conversations about, you know, systemic injustice and oppression and colonization is that we have these practices that like can move the conversation forward. And I know that like when someone is inviting in my feedback, my critical feedback, and they're rooted in their practices that my honest feedback is not going to destroy the relationship. Whereas if someone is not rooted in their own practices and of integrity and, and kindness and non-harming and non-stealing, self-regulation, then feedback that I give, honest feedback as a trans person, as an anti-racist person with a couple of decades of experience, it can be threatening or how they might hear that is like, you're wrong or you're bad. When what mm-hmm. I'm saying is like, we need something different than what you're offering. Yep, 100%. Um, I'm aware of the time, Jacoby, and I want to make sure we cover a few other topics that I wanted to ask you about. There was one thing I was thinking of, like a couple things uh, around parenthood, pregnancy, Mm. 
so mm. forth. So one thing from your book is you say meditation saved your, your life and you shared about being bullied when you were younger. And I was just wondering for parents listening, I mean, there's a lot of bullying out yeah. there, cyberbullying and all kinds who maybe want to offer a tool to their kid. Is there, is there a way that you could direct them to be, to be helpful? Is it a meditation or? I mean, it depends on the kid and what they're going to be receptive to. You know, it's said that there's 84,000 Dharma doors. There's a lot of ways in. <laughs> I have a lot of things to offer up that I can't cover all 84,000. But figuring out, like, does your kid really need embodiment and need to move? Does your kid need stillness or alone time? Does your kid really need co-regulation? And they, they need to be in a group of people that are self-regulated in order for them to feel okay and build the skill in the future for them to self-regulate without without the group. So there's so many practices. And I think it's an exploration of just like offering this, you know, offering asana, does that work for you? Offering boxing lessons, does that work for you to get your anger out? Offering to go hiking, like does that allow you to co-regulate with the, the trees and the earth as humans have for our entire existence? Offering up lots of different options and just paying attention. You know, as parents, I feel like our awareness practice is can really benefit our parenting because there's no cookie cutter child. What works for my child may not work for your child. And also what works for my child, like that could change tomorrow. <laughs> that could change next year. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> As both parents of four-year-olds, mine's almost four. I can, yeah. Yes, <laughs> that, could, that can change the next second. <laughs> of, totally. of like throwing out different tactics by the minute. <laughs> totally. But for, I mean, I'll say, so for younger children, something silly, something playful, like my kid will do yoga if it's like an adventure through the forest and we like make a tree pose and then we make a snake pose and then we walk like a bear or whatever, like he'll, he'll get into it that way. Whereas like, you know, a teenager is going to think that's mad cheesy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and maybe for a teenager, the simple practice of just like sitting still and watching your breath, that's what worked for, for me when I was when I was a teenager, just know then that like I'm paying attention to something that can't be taken away from me. And that allowed me the resilience to face my bullies and know that like I just uh, need to stay here in my small town another year or two until I graduate high school and then I can escape this. But I can stay if I'm like keep bringing my attention back to my breath rather than my attention on the bullies and what the bullies are saying about me and who's heard what about me. It's a practice of where am I placing my attention and how is that going to most benefit me? And I think it's also a question for parents with phones right now, right? When like our lives are so accessible in ways that they never have been. Like what are our boundaries around our own use of phones? Because that's, you know, we're always modeling to our children. And then what are the boundaries that we create for our children? And what are ways that we're willing to withstand their rebellion <laughs> against that? Yeah. Or they're, you know, thinking that you're being unfair or overly protective or whatever. And then what is the space to kind of like explore and like try something on? And it's like, oh, you totally not present in your body when you watch screens. Okay, let's narrow your screen time. Or, wow, actually, I see that you're really enlivened when you watch this show. And then like you want to move your body more. Great. That's not a problem right now. This is working. Okay. Lots of good stuff there. Juicy stuff there. Meeting the moment and the needs. And um, I know that was a really broad question. So I appreciate <laughs> uh, jumping in for that. And 
I, I definitely hands up to needing to watch my phone use because I see that my child really sees it. Mm-hmm. And that is not what I want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you're not like a little, like, I mean, obviously she probably saw it when, when she was younger, but now I can see that she sees it. <laughs> like, that's not good. And I also want to shout out Center of Humane Technology, which has a lot of good mm-hmm. resources for limiting the screen time and especially um, like social media use and and okay. working in community. I mean, the way they talk about it that I think is helpful is it's not, with, especially with teens, right? Like isolating them from their community if their whole community is on there might be like hurt them. <laughs> but if you can get like the school or all the parents to decide as a community how mm-hmm. how powerful that could be. That's great. And kind of rewinding to um, before these little ones come out into the world, I definitely want to hit on your, well, maybe it wasn't your own experiencing experience. Uh, and I, uh, forgive me, Jacoby, because I know you, germinating, is that the word you mm, use? Yes, thank germinating. you. I wanted to use your language, germinating your little one that led you to have such a, a strong interest in prenatal yoga for queer folks. Yeah, after... When I was germinating, my partner was the one to like make any calls to any providers so that she would be the the one who intercepted any transphobia that might be there. And she was really clear and direct and like, have you had trans people in your practice? And in what ways are you prepared to to shift and change what you do and how you speak to make room for my partner? What a vulnerable place to be. <laughs> I mean, wow, pregnancy is vulnerable space, yeah. germinating, creating, I mean, anyway. And I just, wow, 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 wow. So yeah, amazing that you had a partner that was so helpful. Yeah, she's fierce. And the birth work world is so very straight and very cisgender. And part of how transphobia is operating in this moment is totally dismissing our lives and imagining that we don't exist. And so pregnant men is a thing, although a lot of the world would wish it not to be a thing. And I just knew from saw from my own experience that if I hadn't had such a strong and fierce advocate by my side and my partner, and if I hadn't been you know, as self-loving with myself as learned to be through my practices, that I wouldn't have received the quality of care that I did receive. I would have settled for something that I wasn't quite, quite comfortable with, or I wouldn't have spoken up for myself. And, you know, we know across various populations that when that health outcomes are reduced, when we don't receive good care, and health outcomes are increased when we receive care from people that look like us and that have been through the lived experiences like us. And so there's a very small queer birth work world that I'm now a part of. And I came into that by doing LGBT inclusion trainings for prenatal yoga teacher trainings and then found a really good fit with someone who had hired me a few times. And and so I took her training um, that was really centered on reproductive justice and, and social justice through birth work and have been offering queer and trans-centered prenatal yoga online for the last year and a half, which isn't long, but I've been I've been teaching yoga for over 20 years. So, you know, I bring a lot of the skills that I offer in any yoga class and just applying it to the pregnant body. And I think it's really, it's been meaningful that I am who I am in this body offering prenatal classes that, you know, trans people can come to my classes and see themselves in me. And also straight cisgender women can come to my classes and learn a lot. And, you know, through, as we've discussed before, through not having their lives centered, but knowing that their liberation is bound in mine, 
And so then being part of a community that can have different kinds of conversations that center feminism and center queerness and center a multitude of genders from the moment of gestation, right? That like we're not projecting our expectations based on gender onto these fetuses and that we're supporting each other to do that. This class sounds incredible. Um, <laughs> I have, I mean, the the time that you've been teaching that is, like you said, with all, all your teaching, I mean, I, I have no doubt that it's a highly qualified class. And mm. um, I didn't realize it was open to cisgendered women. So yeah, I've been curious about the title, you know, because I want to signal to queer and trans people that like this space is built for you. You are at the center, but also don't like from the very beginning, the first class I offered was two of my friends that were pregnant, that were queer, but in straight relationships. And then another yoga student who's who's straight and an artist and surrounded by queer people in her life. And so that was my first class. So I, I couldn't, you know, from the beginning, it was there's going to be people um, that have a more traditional experience of, of pregnancy from mine. But, you know, over time and putting the message out to, to queer folks who is in the room has shifted. And, and I think it's really beautiful to like witness a single trans dad, you know, being so soft and cuddly with his two month old in my postnatal yoga classes or mm. to, yeah. For, for students, uh, the other, a couple of weeks ago, some of the women in my class were talking about how they're getting unwanted attention, right? And then one of the trans men in my class was like, God, I hear that that's a burden and part of me really wants that burden. Like no one ever recognizes me as pregnant. Mm. Mm. And I don't get that like collective attention from strangers that don't know mm. that I haven't mm. disclosed to. And we could hold all of that at once, you know, which was just beautiful. Yeah. This sounds like a magical class. When when is it, and can people find it off your website? Yeah, it's on my website. It's Mondays and sometimes Thursdays if there's enough people that are interested or that need the Thursday class. I run that one too at 4 p.m. Eastern, which I know is not ideal for people on the West Coast, but I have to orient around my child's care schedule, you know. And if I'm <laughs> if I'm stressed getting to class, then it's not going to be as great of a class. So I hope to broaden the times that I can offer. But right now, that's just where I am with my life and my childcare and family. Yeah. And so that's that's um, 1 p.m. Western, right? Yeah. Huh. Hopefully, maybe some people can take a later lunch break. And um, oh, right. I'm going to share share the word on that. Um, oh, thank you. Classes will be nice and full. Thank you so much. Is there anything that I didn't ask you today that I should have asked you? Oh. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I don't yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we could talk for days and, you know, have like different podcast <laughs> segments from our conversation. Yeah. And it probably won't be the last time that we have conversations. I sure hope like not. Do yeah. you want to share a little bit about the, your upcoming projects? I'm, I'm glad to hear you're working on another book. Sure. It's an anthology called No Justice, No Peace, spelled K N O W. And it's born out of social justice work happening in the Claremont area in LA. And they brought in different embodiment and mindfulness practitioners to resource these social justice organizations that are, you know, facing down Amazon and doing really bold, courageous work. And so I've done workshops with the, this group of people. And then the the book is meant to be like a manual and an offering to both social justice workers and an invitation to 
embodiment and mindfulness practitioners. Well, I hope working on it, not alone, will be. (laughs) (laughs) I remember you writing your book, A Queer Dharma, and (laughs) how it was a, a hard time. I mean, I just finished writing a book as well. So I know it's grueling work and maybe doing it collectively is a little less (laughs) um, intensive. Maybe not. Maybe it's intense in a different way. It's intense in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope, I know that that intensity is going to bring a lot of beautiful fruit into the world and we're going to stay on the lookout for for that book and supporting everything you're creating. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Jacoby. Thank you for this time. And you're right. There's probably a lot, a lot more we could get into. So I hope you'll join me again sometime. Sounds great. I would love that. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries we will collide and the light will bend we will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land